Turn us on and the satisfaction's guaranteed. Frank discussion with passion on CJD 800. Coming up after 10.15 tonight, it is our LGBTQ panel, and uh, we've got all kinds of topics to discuss, uh, but first... Time to check out our inbox. Your texts are always welcome. Connect with Passion at 514-800. So something that just came into my inbox, by the way, is a, a question I'm going to leave for our LGBTQ panel. It's a young... Uh, a young woman who just wrote in uh, saying that uh, she walked in on her father having sex with another man and now she doesn't know if she should what she should do tell my her mom what have you so she's a little stuck I figured it's a good opportunity to bring this up to uh, our, our panel. So I'm going to leave that one aside and answer some other questions. And by the way, you can send them in to me by email to laurie at drlaurie.com or feel free to text me right here right now at 514-800. Uh, so this person wants to know, do women prefer men to manscape or natural? So I'm assuming this is from a guy and um, I'll let you answer that because this is really probably a question of maybe a question of preference or expectations but I would tell you my experience in terms of just hearing and talking to people is that as long as the person looks hygienic and uh, so usually there's some level of manscaping and I'm I would say that I think that most men do some manscaping, meaning the, uh, you know, some trimming of the pubic hair if they have uh, maybe a lot of pubic hair there, or um, at least the, the trimming, some men shave, some men shave their, uh, their testicles. So I'm going to put this out there for the women to answer. Let me know, do you like it natural, a man natural, or manscaped. I mean, we can ask the same question of men as well, right? Do you prefer women who are uh, completely natural and they don't do any, any scaping and no, no trimming, no, no nothing or not. So let's, uh, let's put that out there. And just for the, you know, I just saw an, an episode of, uh, it just made me think of this, of Curb Your Enthusiasm, where, uh, Larry David, uh, the whole, throughout the whole episode, he's going like, <laughs> And, and the problem is he, he keeps telling everybody he has a pubic hair stuck in the back of his throat. So if for anything, uh, it, it would, uh, the shaving or the manscaping or the trimming would uh, maybe prevent that from happening. Uh, so that's something. Okay, uh, another question. Hi, Lori. I, I love your show. I'm having trouble about how to have the sex talk with uh, my younger sibling. She's nine years old and I'm 20. I recently found searches about sex positions and other erotic subjects in my iPad's browser history, and we are the only two using the internet, so I know it couldn't be anyone else. What should I do? We're pretty close, but I'm having difficulty digesting this situation because she's so young. Is nine years old too early to have the talk? That's a really good question. But to me, if a child is already searching 
for things like this, uh, whatever erotic topics are coming up and they're actually searching, it's because they're curious and you don't want to let that just go. You don't want them to run with that. You need to uh, be able to really have a talk and maybe just, I don't want to say a confront, you don't confront, you talk in a very kind of a kind, non-judgmental way, but asking her what she thinks she's seeing also. Let's see what how she's processing uh, this information. And it's a very good opportunity to have a talk about um, pornography. In other words, the imagery that, that uh, she might see online, how that is entertainment for adults and how that's adult content and that that's, uh, that's fantasy. And then you can do the... You can do the comparison with movies, how movies are fantasy. Well, this is a a different kind of fantasy and that you understand that she's curious about sex and that she can ask you any questions uh, that she she wants, that uh, she doesn't have to be afraid to ask you. And it might be safer with you than than your parents because um, not that you're close in age, but she may have developed this trusting relationship with you as a sibling rather than a parent who maybe she, if your parents haven't been open about sexuality, then it might be more difficult to, uh, to bring up with her, but definitely something that, um, that is a good opportunity as scary as it is, right? I mean, it's, um, yeah, it, it's hard to, to digest that because it confronts you, but at the same time, it's also really important for you uh, to take this opportunity, I think, since you, you are an adult and she's just a child, to um, to be able to explain some of this stuff to her. All right, uh, so a couple of, lots of people weighed in here. Uh, trimmed my butt a couple of times, not a good idea. Stubbly cheek to cheek. Yes, stubbles can be un- uncomfortable. Uh, my son searched boobies a few years ago. Guess what he found? I hope he, was he looking for the animal, the bird, the boobies? Um, or was he actually looking for boobies? <laughs> uh, definitely manscaped or at the very least neatly trimmed, but certainly not wild growing, however natural that might be. Uh, yes, the boobies one. He claimed he was looking up a bird or something he heard. Probably we didn't really talk more about it at the time. Well, it might've been a good idea to talk about it considering he probably didn't see the birds boobies. He probably saw breasts, right? Uh, I think vaginas are sexy and beautiful, full bush, trimmed, bald, little hair. There is no unattractive vagina. A woman's body is a work of art. So just a correction here, the vagina is one part of the vulva. When you're talking about the bush and all of the other parts of it, the whole of it is called the vulva. Not that I want to correct you, but I figured once we're here, I might as well use proper terminology. It's just that we all use the word vagina to to, um, to refer to the whole of the female genitals, but the vagina is just the one part, which is the whole, <laughs> the actual entryway. Uh, let's see. Hi, Dr. Laura. I sort of shave around my penis and testicles every six months or so, and my tummy and chest too while I'm at it. Just a bit more trim look, I think, but no big deal. Well, I wonder how uh, have uh, how your partners might have uh, responded to that. So this person was a guy asking how women felt um, about this. 
Uh, nine years old, way too young, cannot process the act in itself. Well, exactly why you have to talk to kids who are accessing this kind of information because they're not processing it the way uh, we do. Um, we also don't want them to be frightened or scared or even more uh, curious in terms of searching themselves when they could get answers from home, which I think is also really important. So to me, like having a sex talk as of nine years old is definitely not too young. Remember, it's a scaffolding process, but once they've been exposed to pornography, it's time to really have a talk about what that is and letting them know that it's not okay to be um, looking at things like that. Now, at the same time, they may be searching out actual information. So give them other resources for that information. There's plenty of books for kids that age to explain, uh, to explain sexuality. So there you go. 10 years ago, grade one school project had my daughter wanting to Google beaver. Thankfully we were able to convince her to come with us to the library. Good plan. Uh, coming up, our LGBTQ panel will join me, and I've got a question here for them from a young listener who wrote in just today, and I think um, the three of us together will be able to answer her. A safe place to work out the kinks in any relationship. It's Passion with CGAD 800's Dr. Lori Batito. Tonight, it's our LGBTQ evening and uh, with our panelists, lots of stuff to discuss, always very interesting, giving a voice to the LGBTQ community. Joining me tonight, we have Bill Ryan. He's a McGill social work professor and LGBTQ activist and uh, a regular here for many, many years. And joining us uh, for the first time is Matthew Hayes. He is a journalist and author. He's been reporting on LGBTQ issues for many years. He's a professor at Concordia and Marianopolis. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Good evening. Thank you. Uh, so it's great to have you, Matthew, as a, a new uh, participant to our LGBTQ panel. And uh, just to get us started, may, you've been uh, doing this for a while and just wondering if you could share some of the, the highlights of your career reporting on the LGBTQ community here in Montreal. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's really, really tough. Uh, <laughs> Is there, has there been that much? Uh, <laughs> I guess yeah, so. Yeah, well, yeah, there has been. I think uh, probably a lot of, I covered uh, a lot of the friction between police and the LGBTQ community uh, um, in the 90s when there was sort of a rash of, well, not sort of, there was a rash of uh, homophobic violence and murders. Mm. Um, and uh, that was a very interesting time to be reporting. I was doing a lot of writing for The Mirror and for Extra in Toronto about the situation, um, and it was sort of it was sort of really eerie when the the, uh, the serial killer was captured in Toronto because a lot of the things that activists were saying about police negligence and police being tone deaf to the, the cries of members of the gay community, mm -hmm. the queer community, was was quite similar to what, what activists experienced here in Montreal. There were sort of a lot of uh, eerie echoes of that. So that was interesting. But, I mean, um, it was certainly fascinating uh, to cover uh, the same-sex marriage breakthroughs that mm -hmm. were happening across Canada. I was writing for that 
for, for an American magazine, The Advocate, the gay American magazine. That was actually really interesting to be right to kind of explaining what was going on in Canada. Right. Um, so th- those were, but there have been, there've been so many fun, interesting stories to, and then great, you know, interesting queer people to interview along the way. It's been, it's, it's been uh, fascinating to, to write about it and to see the way in which popular culture and journalism has, has moved uh, the gay, what we used to call the gay liberation. Now we would call it queer liberation. Mm-hmm. We went along. And what, so in the last uh, 25 years, like from when you started to now, what have been some of the major changes, advances, I, I would want to say, I hope, um, in the uh, queer community? Uh, ooh, well, big questions. I know. I mean, I mean, in terms of just legal terms, obviously, uh, uh, we were way ahead of the curve. Um, uh, it kind of happened that the, uh, the the flips happened in Canada, and that we got rid of a lot of the discrimination mm-hmm. laws. And then we had same-sex marriage in the United States. They had same-sex marriage first, and then earlier this week, they had um, they had a, a pretty sweeping Supreme Court decision, which is really historic. Which means that. Uh, at least governments can't discriminate against people, and you can't discriminate against people in terms of their jobs. Good. Um, I think, to me, if you ask me, it's a, it is a general question, but I think one of the things that I think is most sweeping, it, really, and this isn't just in Quebec, although let's, let's um, shout out for Quebec. We were the first uh, place in North America to have, to have legislation protecting gay, gay and lesbian people, mm. protecting people in, a, in our human rights code. So that's a really kudos to Quebec for do, being the first place to do that. Yeah. But to me, when I, because I teach young people at Marianopolis and at Concordia, and what is really very moving to me is how casual it is now for somebody to be um, open about the fact that they are gay or lesbian mm-hmm. or bi or trans. Um, they, people now, young people, uh, can lead their lives. Um, not in all cases. I know it's not perfect, but it really is, uh, you know, Bill can back me up on this. It's, it's really quite significantly different than it was 30 years ago. Oh, um, yeah. Many more, so many more people have come out. It's become so so much less of of a big deal. I mean, Harvey Milk. Every time I watch the Times of Harvey Milk, I'm struck hmm. by when he says everyone has to come out. I'm struck by how right he was because now so many people have come out. The sheer volume of people who have come out have made it um, still a brave act to be honest about who you are. But it's made it a lot easier to be honest about who who we are. Right. What I've noticed too is. Um with young people, so I, you know, I have young, young, uh, well, they're not young anymore, but I watch them, my children go through high school and all of that and, and expose, exposure to, to their generation. And it was so nice to see, but where kids are coming out so young, right now, so that they're not suffering in the closet for, for such a long period of time that say, even in my generation, like you could have been gay in high school, but you never told anybody you were gay. Like the, and it would, I mean, there was all kinds of just personally, I knew two, uh, two boys in, uh, in my grade who committed suicide, who Ooh. we then knew were gay, you know, everybody kind of knew, but nobody ever said anything. We never talked about it, but they were struggling clearly that today, um, in, in, the, the younger generation, I remember my own kids coming home to me and telling me, oh, this person came out to me and that person came out to me and that person came out to me. And it's, it was never a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, it was, oh, that's great. You know, I'm glad that they talked to you and, and what have you. So all these younger, yo- it, it's just younger now when people are able to feel safer, I suppose, to, uh, to come out. But I, 
Bill, do you think that that like saves them from years of potential agony? Oh, absolutely. Um, studies, you know, 20, 25 years ago would speak of people from the time they came to be aware of their own sexual orientation to the time that they actually told somebody else could be decades. Right. And, you know, that's collapsed into a matter of months and weeks for a lot of people. But I, I, I just want to add a little asterisk, and that is that we are still showing really high rates of suicidal ideation and suicidal gestures in young people. So we're kind of living in two worlds, a world that's been liberated for many people, both in laws and attitudes, but there's some people who just don't seem to be benefiting from that. And they're right. still suffering a lot of anguish and distress. And one of the things I've noticed um, over my teaching career is when I first started teaching on gender and sexual diversity at McGill, I would have students come up to me on the break and they would sort of whisper in my ear, you know, like, I'm gay or I'm right. lesbian. And it would be a very kind of secret thing and not to be talked about. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, when I, when I have a class and they introduce themselves, people that, yeah, I'm a lesbian, I'm trans, I'm non-binary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, been, it's not been a secret at all right. uh, for them among their student peers in their, in their already, you know, few uh, terms at McGill. So there's a huge difference. And, you know, I, I have a lot of people in class will say, you mean there was a time when gay people couldn't get married? <laughs> that's, know, like this notion mm -hmm. that that's just so old as a right. concept. I will always say I'm so grateful that my children never knew that time. They only grew up in marriage, not forget gay marriage, just marriage, right? Marriage mm -hmm. for all. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a real sea shift. I don't, I don't know for you, Matt, but I, you know, if someone had asked me in 1995, or, or someone had said to me in 1995 that 25 years later in Canada we'd be living under this kind of legal regime with these kinds of social attitudes, I would have said, well, it's very aspirational, but I don't think we'll get there in 2020, <laughs> and we're way beyond what people hoped. That's fabulous. I, I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay, I've got today. I I got this email from a 16-year-old girl. I just just read it before going on air, and it just so happens it's fitting for uh, this panel. I wanted to share it with you. It's a bit um, it's touchy. I mean, it's it's rough for her. Like she's going through a really rough time. I'm 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 assuming she's listening tonight. So I'm hoping that you guys can help her out. Yeah, I want to read it to you, and then we can discuss it now and, and after the break. I'm a 16-year-old girl who left work early this evening. I usually finish my part-time at 11. I always walk home from work. It's not far from where I live. Tonight, I took a shortcut through a laneway and into the backyard of our house. As I walked on the side of the house, going to the front door to get in, I could hear sounds from the basement window. I looked in and saw my dad having sex with another man the most shocking thing I've ever saw I did not go in the house I walked around for a while and then saw no cars in the driveway now I'm writing you my mom went to see my aunt and I texted her and she said she will be home around 10 how or should I tell her I do not even want to see my father now totally grossed out what do I do so speaking about somebody being in the closet possibly or having a gay parent or now being now having this information, like what do we tell this 16-year-old girl? Bill, you want to start? <laughs> As the social worker of the group? <laughs> That's a pretty tough one. I, Isn't I, it? I, you know, I would not um, have a conversation with anybody about that right away. Maybe a trusted friend 
a counselor, you can, I don't know, 16 years old, maybe there's a school counselor who's available online to talk mm-hmm. about it. But, but I think that she should have a conversation about um, about this and how she's feeling about it and get some of that worked out first before sort of lobbing a bomb into the middle of her family's living room with this information. And I understand that could be really shocking. It's shocking on several levels. And when you when you um, when you're convinced or you're pretty sure that your parents are heterosexual, right? Um, you know, even then, if you see one parent with someone other than the parent, the other right. parent, that's pretty shocking. But when it confronts also who you see your dad as, as a person, that can also be pretty uh, difficult to absorb. And uh, I think first reactions should give way to second reactions before anything is discussed. Right, right. What do you think? Matthew, what do you think? Well, I would agree, and I I would definitely um, urge this young person. I would say, look, I'm really sorry you had that experience. It's yeah. very, That's very difficult. And uh, like Bill was saying, uh, if, if, if you're seeing your parent have sex, out, you know, having an, an, an extramarital affair uh, and actually seeing it, that's uh, very difficult. Um, I definitely would not, would urge her not to go and tell her mother um, yes. because that will be, that could really compound things for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. I think, like Bill said, to get some advice maybe with a counselor or talk to somebody. Um what about speaking to the father? Well, that I would say would probably be the first the first person to go to. Don't right. <clears throat> don't. Uh, this is going to be very difficult for everybody. If you if you uh, tell your mother, it's going to be very hard on her, and then it's, she's obviously going to be feel the need to confront her right. husband. I think that would be a very bad dynamic. I think I would if she feels close enough to her father. But first of all, I would I would talk to a counselor about this. Right. Or... I, I'd like to, uh, we'll come back to this uh, this question because I think it's uh, it's pretty uh, complicated, of course, and what to say, but our, our texters and our listeners have uh, their opinion about this as well. From the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passion, CJD 800. It's our LGBTQ night tonight, and as it happens, a teenage girl wrote in to me tonight uh, telling me that her she saw her father uh, cheating on her mom with a man, and she is confused as to what she should do. Our text board is uh, completely lit up now with the comments that I want to share. Uh, joining us tonight is uh, our regular Bill Ryan. He is uh, a McGill social work professor and LGBTQ activist. We have Matthew Hayes, a journalist and author who has reported on LGBTQ issues for uh, several uh, decades. He's also a professor at Concordia and Marinopolis. So I want to share a few uh, texts. First of all, it says, great that these guys are so appreciative of how far societal attitudes towards the LGBTQ2 community have changed so much over three decades. I am too. So that was there. Uh, another. So another texter says, you have to tattle. I'm sorry, but you don't keep that in. Uh, just cheating is bad enough, but exactly... Another texter says, maybe her mom knows that her dad is gay in secrecy. Uh, Another one says, tell her mom definitely. There are health risks now. Uh, There's got to be a way to talk to the dad, somebody says. Uh, I guess if you're not scared of your dad, you could always send him an email and say, I know what you did. Please explain without saying anything else. 
another texter says both wrong disregarding possible health issues is totally irresponsible if I was the mom and was not told by a family member I would be more upset uh, it may end up in divorce delaying the inevitable is foolish and PS it shouldn't matter shouldn't matter whether he's gay or not he's cheating if he's actually cheating so it's like a two-part issue here I think for the young girl the shock there's two shocks happening at the same time you assume your parents are straight if they're together so there's there's that I mean, we don't know the whole backstory but I'm assuming just from what she's written um so there's the the shock of that and then the shock of just the let's say it had been another woman it would have been also a shock <laughs> so it's kind of a double yeah. a double thing here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back on something that I said before the break because I had a little bit of time to think about it. Yeah. I, and I just want to reinforce how important it is. I think that she talk to a trusted adult mm-hmm. that's not one of her parents that helps her to sort out some of the feelings and initial reaction to this. And if you know, there's no one that she can identify to talk to. She can text the kids helpline at six eight six eight six eight. Um, it's all, there's also a telephone number, but I'm not sure what that is. I just know the text number at this point, okay. 686868. But just to work through some of this and figure out some strategies, you know, we to, just to go a little bit more abstract, we don't know what the situation is between the parents. No, we don't. We don't know exactly what's going on, but we have a minor who's living at home, who's a dependent, and what we don't want in the immediate is for the family to kind of blow up in front of her and and have her feel that this is her fault. Right, right, right. I think it's really important. You know, I appreciate the fact that texters say it's got to be told, it's got to be mentioned immediately, but there's no urgency to mention this tonight or in the days that follow until she has a chance to sort some of these things out. Um, In that, I agree. Maybe the the feeling is we've got to say, no, talk to somebody, talk it out, and make the decision after you've discussed it with uh with an adult because it's also we have to remember she's traumatized now by this this whole thing right so yeah. she's holding all of this in she's got to live with both her parents um yeah. and face them and so you're going to bet that it's going to come out not not this part but the reactions or the mm-hmm. the impact will be shown the mother will say well what's wrong with you what well, why are you behaving mm-hmm. this way or the mm-hmm. father will say the same thing so mm-hmm. it for her to carry that trauma that uh, just on her shoulders by herself is uh, would be extremely destructive to her mental health. Yes, potentially. And Absolutely. that's why I think it's important she talk to somebody. Yeah. But someone that's not emotionally involved in the actual situation at this point that can, that can listen and uh, help her to express her emotions and guide her through how she might want to respond to this. Right. And she, and maybe talking to the father might be the way to go. I don't know. I, I again, we don't know the relationship with the parents, but it should not be her responsibility. And somebody, some adult, needs to tell her that it will not be her responsibility if the situation blows up. She didn't do anything wrong. Right. 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 She called that. She called something out that was going on that she witnessed, but she didn't do anything wrong. So I think right. it's. Uh, I think it's really, really important. And as, as people said, you know, one person says maybe he swings both ways. It's also very possible the wife knows about it. We don't know. We don't know the, right. the rest of the story. Um, right. But again, a person reiterates here, I think the minor should first see a therapist and then afterwards get professional advice on how to approach 
the whole issue. Someone else says, true, I agree, it's not urgent, but she does need to talk to somebody. And um, another texter says, that teenage girl's experience is horrible, a double shock. I hope she can just catch her breath and give it a few days, then maybe talk with dad when he's uh, reachable. And then another text says, absolutely not. This is a family issue. Mom needs to know, and there is an urgency. There may be a health issue involved. Family comes first. So we're seeing a, quite a division in the ways to approach this kind of thing. Yes. And I, I think that the idea of talking to a therapist is not a bad idea, but that's a pretty high, uh, wall to climb for someone who's 16. Absolutely. Um, you know, especially talking to a therapist without your one of your parents knowing or knowing why, whereas confidential helplines can get you help 24 hours a day at any moment, on, and they're trained on all these issues. Right. And, and that could be the first step. That definitely the first step, and, and I would hope that this young lady, if, if things turn out and the parents divorce or whatever happens, that it's not her that caused it, you know, and I hope the parents are wise enough to reassure her that she did not she was not the cause of it right because all of that secrecy too you can't i can't couldn't imagine if there was all this secrecy that the marital relationship is healthy mm -hmm. also moving on let's talk about pride for a few minutes now there will not be any pride parades at all right not in Montreal, is my understanding. Yeah, nowhere. <laughs> I don't think anywhere I don't know in the if world. Anywhere in Canada, <laughs> there are going to be any either. I, I, it seems to me that uh, I saw Vancouver and Toronto's were also, uh, also cancelled. Right. But what's interesting is, uh, from what I read, Pride is will be on the very same day around the world on June 27th, which is Global Pride Day. Have you heard of Global Pride? I hadn't, I hadn't heard that that was how, what was going to happen. I have heard that um, in uh, a lot of the Pride celebrations this year will be dedicated to Black Lives Matter, and I'm very, very happy to hear mm. that. I think that that's extremely appropriate given yes. um, the crisis that's, that's un, unfolded in the, in the past few weeks in the United States with the uh, with uh, you know murders of, of black men captured. Right. On uh, on video, so really horrific images, and I think we have to stand in solidarity with uh, with Black Lives Matter right now. Right. I, I, I agree entirely, and I think in Canada there's a, I think also a particular need to make sure that we include Indigenous um, yes. people and their relationships with the police, which are pretty hazardous as well. Yes. Um, and what about in the queer community? Because that's another area especially if you're uh queer and of color like there's a it, you know there's a I mean we've talked about this bill before uh, on the show um even more particular difficulties right yes well we we you know we kind of have an, an image of what pride is but but lgbtq people um across all boundaries and all identities and uh you know even just as an LGBTQ person, relationships with the police in, in the latter half of the 20th century, well, for all time probably, have been pretty tenuous. And I thought it was interesting that when Matt was speaking earlier, he talked about documenting this relationship with the police and the fact that we're living the Black Lives Matter moment now. Um, it's interesting to note that our communities have had difficult relationships with the police as well. And our, there's still a lot of hesitation to go to the police or to trust mm -hmm. that the police will respond appropriately to someone who's experienced homophobia. 
And I suspect that in most cases, in most cities, they would respond well. But there's this residual mm. questioning of whether the police will actually be on side or right. not. Right. And then, of course, if you're if you're gay and you, you have other identities that intersect with that, like if you're racialized or indigenous, and right. of course that's just multiplied exactly in, in, in hesitation. Right, and that's what I was getting at too. It's uh, another double whammy there too. Uh, coming up, we'll talk about uh, a new study that shows that 28% of young adults say they wouldn't hug someone living with HIV. So we're clearly, um, education-wise, not doing a great job when it comes to HIV. We'll discuss that with our LGBTQ panel panelists, Bill Ryan and Matthew Hayes, coming up. Passion with Dr. Lori Batito on CJAD 800. Global Pride on June 27th. The San Francisco, Boston, and other major American celebrations have uh, called off their plans, of course, as have we. But an international group of pride organizations is coming together to stage Global Pride on June 27th. Interpride and the European Pride Organizers Association are working with national organizations in Canada, Germany, Sweden, the UK, the US, along with regional networks in uh, South Africa, Asia, Oceania, Latin America, to bring communities together for the Global Pride event. It will live stream online for 24 hours, featuring contributions from pride organizations worldwide, speeches from human rights activists, and musical performances. So if anybody's interested, Global Pride on uh, June 27th. And doesn't this mark the Pride 2020, the 50th anniversary for for many of these pride parades? Historically, Bill? Uh, you, you're, uh, Matt, you may know more about that than I do. I'm trying to think back on dates now. 1969. Well, almost 69, so. Yes. Yeah, so. 1971. Yeah. yeah, I think many people are saying uh, that that for, they're celebrating uh, 50 years. Anyway, there's one topic I did want to share with you that I I found this survey, which I found a bit uh, alarming. Um, so this survey has shown a, a real lack of understanding of HIV among millennials and uh, Gen Zs. Uh, here's one of the key findings: 23% of HIV negative millennials claim to be either not at all informed or only somewhat informed about HIV. Gen Z respondents were at 41%. This lack of understanding led 28% of HIV negative young adults to admit they have avoided hugging, talking to, or being friends with someone with HIV. And of course, we know it can't be uh, transmitted by casual contact. Um, and additionally, 67% of HIV negative millennial and Gen Z respondents said they were more concerned about HIV than other sexually transmitted infections, yet more than half of those surveyed were not using condoms or uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, the PrEP. So that there's a lot of work still to be done uh, in the world of HIV education, it seems. There certainly is, and I, you know, I, I'm kind of shocked, to, but not surprised, as the old line goes. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, there was obviously a gap for a while in Quebec where we weren't actually teaching sex ed. They just right. uh, suspended sex ed for a while, which was really very bizarre, and actually one of my students wrote about 
the whole situation in Vice, which, and she did a really good job oh, good. writing about it. Um, I think the other thing that happened, to be perfectly blunt, is I think that there was a period that we all went through in the, in the gay community um, where we kind of stopped talking about HIV and AIDS ourselves. And I think that um, that happened because we had good treatments, mm-hmm. um, and so a lot of people regained their health. And a, a lot of people kind of, I think, I was probably guilty of it too. We really didn't want to talk about it for a while because it had been such a nightmare. It had been so incredibly painful to watch our friends and lovers die. Um, it had been really quite miserable. It had been a lot of anxiety around it, and uh, it was just a horror show. And, uh, you know, when, a number of years ago when people started to make some documentary, suddenly a few documentary films came out, How to Survive a Plague, which was nominated for an Oscar, um, United in Anger about ACT UP, uh, Vito about Vito Russo. Suddenly there were a few documentaries about AIDS, and I asked the filmmakers when these films came out, why now? Why is this suddenly mm-hmm. coming up? And they said exactly that. It was what I called epidemic amnesia. Mm-hmm. And what that's meant is, uh, the other thing is, I think also, because of these breakthroughs with treatments for HIV, um, many people have maybe gained a bit of a false sense of security around, and that's obviously very dangerous. Uh, Yes, it's now much more of what we would consider a livable condition to have HIV, um, but it is by no means an advantage, and people really should be very careful about making sure that they're using PrEP or they're using uh, they're, uh, practicing safer sex and avoiding getting HIV. It is by no means um, a walk in the park. Right, right. Oh. right and I would, I would add to that, I think, you know, you're, you mentioned the fact that sex education was, for all intents and purposes, abolished in Quebec schools, even though that's not what they said. But um, when when sex education was abolished, you could you could plot on graphs one on top of the other hmm. the increase of sexually transmitted infections among adolescents in Quebec and young adults, wow. and the disappearance of sex ed courses in the schools. Yeah. So there's very there's very clearly a link to that, and also governments, both provincial and federal, just it, it went off the radar for the governments as well, at least in terms of prevention programs, and so. We went from a time in Quebec of having some fairly robust prevention programs funded by the government and government programs or those in the community um, to having sometimes nothing at all that was happening in terms of prevention. Right. So it, it gave people this notion that it's been taken care of. And I still hear people say that to me, oh, that's finished. You know, that used to be a problem, <laughs> but it's not anymore. Right. And, right. You know, people are still getting infected. Right. We um, don't, there luckily, is no vaccine. Are, mm-hmm. Yes. Luckily, there are treatments. And um, and there are prevention um, treatments, like Matt mentioned, the PrEP, mm-hmm. but um, not everyone knows about those. And that's the problem. those are not well advertised. Right. And to me, that's the problem. So it's hard enough getting people to use condoms because in the same study, they found that the those millennials who had, uh, who, te- who tested positive for HIV, 75% of them um, had sex without a condom. And had not used prep, so what we're not teaching or or the message isn't getting through about condom use, but very little information is accessible. It seems about prep. You don't hear about it so much. No, it's, a lot of people still don't. Within the gay community, it's 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 better known because the gay community, at least in in this part of the world, was was much more affected, especially at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But there, there, I've been in other Western European countries where you see advertisements for PrEP in the subway system and in, uh, in on buses and in public billboards, 
but um, here you don't see that at all. And I've actually run into physicians who did not know what PrEP was. Right. You know, in 2019, which, you know, astounds me. And I've I've talked to young people, um, you know, in the classroom, um, asked them about things about HIV and AIDS, and I was pretty surprised at the complete lack of knowledge of what some of them just didn't seem to even really know what that was. It was ancient history to them, so... It's become um, very much a thing of the past. Our our culture didn't, you know, there were a few films about AIDS, um, and then our culture didn't really address it. Um, Hollywood had this notorious homophobia. I mean, there was Philadelphia, which, right. uh, you know, won Tom Hanks an Oscar. Um, but there was a lot of silence in the culture, and uh, frankly, um, uh, a lot of the media reports were, were not good. They were really sensational and fear-mongering and... Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like uh, there was there was just a, a lot of ignorance being promoted about what it was um, and what it, and what it is. Um, right. And still, we don't we don't hear that much about it. Lately, there's been more discussion of it because, uh, frankly, there's it's sort of like we're kind of in the, this nostalgia round. As happens with documentaries, people start saying, "Gee, let's look at this thing 20 or 30 years later and go back and examine it." You know. Right. Right. Yes. Clearly, a lot of work has to be done still. Yes. Have we got, have we got a, just a moment, Lori? Yeah, I want to mention something. Mm-hmm. Um, since the last show, and in, in light of the conversation we just had, I, I just want to mention that one of the pioneers of the HIV-AIDS movement um, died recently, named Larry Kramer. Oh. And um, Larry was the founder, one of the founders of Gay Men's Health Crisis of New York, which was one of the very first um, community organizations to address mm-hmm. um, the HIV-AIDS crisis that was beginning... Um, in the mid-1980s, and then he went on to be one of the founders of ACT UP, um, which was a really important organization in getting governments and the medical and pharmaceutical establishments to take HIV-AIDS seriously and to listen to the voices of people who were affected by it. And Mm -hmm. um, he was a a troublemaker in many people's eyes because he bothered people. He yelled and screamed, (laughs) was angry, but he also moved mountains um, over the course of his life to make people take this seriously and to have governments and pharmaceutical companies take it seriously. And his passing is really a milestone in, you know, at the end of a really important chapter in right. the history of HIV-AIDS in, in, in the world, really. He was a great friend of Dr. Anthony Fauci's as well. Oh, okay. Well, we have something to learn about, shout, you know, shouting from the rooftops and m- making sure you're heard. I think that's a big... Uh... A big message in our time is that we need to be heard. People need to be heard. And sometimes you have to get angry and sometimes you have to scream louder uh, to make change happen, you know. That's the history of change. Yeah, exactly. But we know that uh, I think bottom line is there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of sex education. There's no, no question about that. And I think we cannot just forget about HIV, it has not gone away, people. Like it is no, still it, around. <laughs> no, it hasn't. And the thing is, with these treatments, with prep and other things, uh, we could we could really see um, with with the right leadership, we could actually see an end to HIV. Um, uh, there, there, it could it could be with proper prevention and with the correct funding um, and with the correct vision. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, Hillary Clinton met with AIDS activists in 2016 during the campaign, and mm-hmm. you know she's, as we know, quite a policy wonk. And she was um, talking about the very real possibility of working with global organizations like WHO and uh, 
trying to put an end to HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. And um, as, as we all know, she did not win electoral college, so unfortunately right. she did not become president. So now we have a, a not very competent administration <laughs> running things. So um, missed opportunity, but my hope would be that um, that, that Biden, uh, not my first choice, but that <laughs> Biden, if he surrounds himself with really good people, um, with some expertise, we could maybe bring back the idea of, of America working with international organizations and with, with other com- countries to try to end this because yeah. we actually could do it we now. We could, the, right. The, the um, prevention that we have in place, we don't have a vaccine, but we have um, preventative measures and there have actually been some interesting breakthroughs in terms of the vaccine search. Good. Well, I guess uh, we'll, uh, to, to, uh, we'll just keep watching this, right? And... Uh... And we need more activists like you guys, too. Thank you so much for being on the program. Matthew Hayes, journalist, author, professor at Concordia and Marinopolis. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, do you have social media? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm on uh, Facebook, so if anyone wants, wants to reach me there, they can. That's mainly, I, I do a little bit of Twitter, but ma- mainly I'm a Facebook guy. All right, great. <laughs> Just like us older yeah. folks, too. Matthew Hayes, there you go. And Bill Ryan, also on Facebook. <laughs> on Facebook. Thank you so much. Hope we'll, we can speak to you again, Matthew. Oh, thank you very much for <laughs> All having right. me. Take care. Thank Ciao. you. Take Bye, care. Bill. Uh, thanks to our technical producer, Chris Aiken, and thank you all for joining me here tonight. Coming up next on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening. Stay safe and remember to live your life with passion. <laughs>